To the eye of faith, the suffering of Christ is clear. Is the glory of Christ, the present reign of the Lord Jesus, as clear to the eye of faith? That's the question that Spurgeon is asking in our featured sermon this week. As we work our way through these sermons, we go from week to week reading a, a set of sermons. And this week we're on sermons 556 through to 562. Each week we select a featured sermon, and this week it's number 560, Christ is glorious, let us make him known. Spurgeon's text is Micah 5 and verse 4, and he seems in this sermon to have a particular concern or regard for the college, the pastor's college, with his young men who are students there learning to preach the word of God. Spurgeon calls us to behold Christ in his present plenitude or fullness of glory and endeavour to get as clear a perception of that as you've had of his shame. Not only weep at his burial, but rejoice at his resurrection. Not only sorrow at his cross, but worship at his throne. Do not merely think of the nails and of the spear, but behold the imperial purple which hangs so nobly upon his royal shoulders and the divine crown which he wears upon his majestic brow. As I've said, Micah 5 and verse 4 is his text. He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. The sermon was delivered on the 20th of March in 1864 at the Tabernacle and Spurgeon simply wants to conduct us in that believing and hopeful frame of mind through the glories of his text. He wants us to observe the perpetual reign of Christ, then flowing from that the perpetual continuance of Christ's church and then the greatness of the King. And if you, you read through what he's doing, he's deliberately building. There's a, a logical progression in these three headings. Once you've seen the perpetual reign of Christ, that leads you to conclude the perpetual continuance of his church. And from both his continued reign and then from his continued reign and the church's consequent perpetual existence comes the, the next corollary, the next logical consequence, the greatness of our king. And it's a, a fairly typical sequence then, uh, the main headings and then a se se sequence of subheadings, a, a set of further thoughts hanging off those main points. At the outset then, the first main heading, observe carefully the perpetual reign of Christ. He lives, he reigns, he is king over his people. First of all, Spurgeon wants us to note that the reign of Christ is shepherd-like in its nature. Earthly monarchs are often tyrants, their yoke is heavy, their language domineering, but it is not so with our king. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. He is meek and lowly of heart, ruling by the force of love and the energy of goodness. His power lies not in imperious threatenings, but in imperial loving-kindness." His service is perfect freedom. To be his subject is to be a king. To serve him is to reign. Blessed are the people who are the sheep of his pasture. If they follow in his footsteps, their road is safe. If they sleep at his feet, no lion can disturb their peace. If they are fed from his hand, they shall lie down in green pastures and know no lack. If they abide close to his person, they shall drink of rivers of delight. This then is the, the, the joy of 
of the flock of this shepherd king. Further, he says, I want you to understand that the reign of Jesus is practical in its character. He shall stand and feed. He is actively engaged in providing for his beloved people. The Lord Christ, the great head of the church, is always actively engaged for the church's good. Through him, the Spirit of God constantly descends upon the members of the church. By him, ministers are given in due season and all church officers in their proper place. Christ is not some listless spectator. He's not some uh, layabout, some uh, lazy, careless glancer at his people. He stands and he feeds. He does not close his eyes to the need of the church. He shall stand and feed. And then this active reign is continual in its duration. And again, you can see this building weight, this building momentum. It's a shepherd-like reign. It's a practical reign. This active reign of the shepherd is continual in its duration. It is said, he shall stand and feed. Not he shall feed now and then and then leave. Not one day grant a revival and then leave his church barren. No, he stands and feeds. The church may go through her dark ages, but Christ is with her in the midnight. She may pass through her fiery furnace, but Christ is in the midst of the flame with her. Her whole history through, wherever you find the church, there you shall find the Lord of the church. And he wants us to, to grasp this noble picture, to realise it, to get a grip upon it. He's sort of summarising now these first three points. This is your breathing space. I would that our churches could be more influenced by a belief in the abiding power, presence and preeminence of their living and reigning Lord. He is no dead king whose memory we are bidden to embalm, but a living leader and commander whose behests we must obey, whose honour we must defend. He builds on again. The empire of Christ in his church is effectually powerful in its action. He shall feed in the strength of Jehovah. He says we rest upon a sure foundation when we build upon the incarnate God. And oh, ye saints of God, the interests of each one of you and of the one great church must be safe because our champion is God. Jehovah is our judge. Jehovah is our lawgiver. Jehovah is our king. He will save us. So if the, the church, if the Christian feeds in the strength of Jehovah, there's no reason for us to be discouraged. When we think of his power, when we think of his excellent strength, then we are uh, more confident in the, the security of the church. And that leads him then to his last point here, that the Lord's kingdom is most majestic in its aspect. He shall feed in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Our Lord Christ is greatly to be reverenced. The familiarity with which we approach him is always to be tempered with the deepest and most reverent adoration. He is our brother, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, but still he counts it not robbery to be equal with God. And it's that glorious and holy tension. He is one with us, making himself of no reputation, and yet he is exalted as the triumphant Lord, that at his name every knee shall bow of things in heaven and of things on earth and of things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, however much we esteem him for his drawing near to us, so we reverence him because he is the God-man highly exalted. 
There is a glory and a majesty, says our preacher, about all the laws of Christ and all his commands, so that whether we baptise at his command or break bread in remembrance of him or lift up his cross in ministry, in whatever we do in his name, which is in fact what he does through us, there is an attendant majesty which should make our minds feel perpetually reverent before him. Here then is, is Spurgeon doing what he's exhorted us to do. Remember, he wants us to fix our eyes by faith, not just upon the crucified Saviour, but upon the risen Saviour. Not just about the Lord Jesus in his humiliation, but the Lord Christ in his exaltation. And this Lord Jesus, risen and glorified, that is our comfort and our glory. And that leads on then to this second point, that the consequent perpetuity of the church hangs upon the perpetual reign of Christ. The king abides and therefore the church abides. Because of the presence of Christ as king in the midst of his people, we exist and always exist and have a calm, quiet, uninjured duration. The Lord is in our midst. Here again, faith fixes upon what is true it overrides mere feeling. So, first reflect that the church actually exists. And, says Spurgeon, that is a wonder in itself. The greatest miracle of all ages is that God has a church in the world. When you think about the oppression and the persecution, the disdain, the, the trials to which the church has been subjected, the inventions of Satan to bring her low, it is not a marvel that the church uh, does not go on as it does, so much as the church even exists in the first place. This is a wonder of divine grace, and it hangs upon the fact that there is a Christ in heaven who has brought his church into existence, and that she always exists. She's not being snuffed out from time to time and then rekindled. There is always a church, whether it's a paganism or Romanism or some other persecution, whether it's the, uh, the assaults of the, the evil one in a particular part of the world at a particular time. Spurgeon gives us some examples from history. I can find her at any and every period from the day when first in the upper room the Holy Ghost came down, even until now. The Church of Christ has never been snuffed out. She may not always have been as prominent. She may not always have been as pure but there has always been a people of God. And that existence, that continued existence, is one of uninjured, quiet, calm duration. It does not say that she lingers, hunted, tempted and worried, but that she abides. There is a calmness here. There is a confidence here. It's not to say we are always in in peace in the sense that no one ever hates the church or is against the church, but there is peace with us in our hearts even when the world rages against the church. It is most noteworthy how in most instances the church of God still keeps her foothold where she has been most savagely persecuted. The rock stands even though it has been washed and washed again by the stormy waves. Why? because Jesus Christ is in the midst of his people. That is the security of the church. That is why she rises and rises rather than being obliterated. 
It is not the preservation of orthodoxy, says Spurgeon, by legal instruments and trust deeds, and too many dissenters have relied upon them. We cannot even depend entirely upon the creeds and confessions, good enough in their way, but they are broken reeds if we are relying upon them. We do not depend upon parliament, upon kings or queens. We may draw up the most express and distinct form of doctrine, but still find that the next generation departs from the truth unless God is pleased to give it renewed grace from on high. Neither presbytery, nor independency, nor episcopacy secures the life of the church. The point is that the church of God exists, not through her ecclesiastical regulations, her organisation, her formularies, her ministers, or her creeds, although those things may have value, but the presence of the Lord in the midst of her. Those things without God are dry, empty, worthless. And while Christ lives... And while Christ reigns, and while he stands and feeds his church, she is safe. But if he were once gone, it would be with her as it is with you and with me when the Spirit of God has departed from us. We are as weak as other men, and she would be quite as powerless. So I don't think, I personally wouldn't say that this means we we abandon our convictions, that we neglect the ministry of the word, that we turn our back upon creeds and confessions but that we do not put these in the place of Jesus Christ, as if to say, while we have this, the church of Christ is secure. No, while we have the Christ of the church, the church of Christ is secure, and these are means whereby we can keep close to him. And then the logic rolls on. Thirdly, flowing from both of these, from the perpetual presence of Christ and from the continued existence of his church, note the greatness of our King. Now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Christ is great in his church. How great in our hearts where he reigns supreme. But we want to see the kingdom of God coming to the ends of the earth. We are not satisfied with small things for our king. We want him to be glorified across the globe. This is a promise, says Spurgeon, of which we will say it is accomplished in a measure even now. When a sinner is converted, then Christ is glorified and he becomes great in the eyes of the world. We may say in truth this of our Lord Jesus, men of all colours trust in his blood. Those who look upward to the southern cross and those who follow the polar star alike worship his dear name. When England ceases her strain of joy in the hush of night, Australia takes up the song, and so from land to land and from shore to shore, a sacrifice of a pure offering is brought to his shrine. The progress of the gospel, says Spurgeon, across the globe means that even now Christ is great to the ends of the earth. But it's a promise further which is guaranteed as to its fulfilment in the fullest sense. Courage, brothers, courage, says our preacher. The morning comes. Are there not streaks reddening the east? Has not the God of day, the Lord Jesus, begun to shoot his divine arrows of light upwards into the thick darkness? Now, Spurgeon has a a particular expectation, uh, and he even isn't shy of using the the language of the fifth great monarchy, coextensive with the world's bounds. But I put it to you that even if your millennialism does not map entirely over Mr. Spurgeon's, that the promise is just as true, 
the guarantee as to its fulfilment in the fullest sense is absolutely real. We may apply it differently, but it is the case that he shall be great unto the ends of the earth. And then furthermore, while this promise is thus guaranteed as to its fulfilment, it is to be prayed for as to its accomplishment. Because God's given us a promise, therefore we pray. I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. The mountain of the Lord shall rise in the latter days. But, he says, mark you, though there be no sound of trowel or a hammer, there will be heard the sound of prayer and praise. If we believe that this is the promise of God, and if we desire this promise, then we shall pray that we might see the name of Christ great across the globe. And, here's the conclusion, all this is not just to be prayed for, but to be laboured for. My soul pants and pines to see Christ glorious in the eyes of men. Lives there a Christian here with soul so dead that he does not desire the extension of his master's kingdom? How we need to ask ourselves such a question in this day. Why are we so little bothered about the glory of Christ? Has our faith not grasped his exaltation? Do we have no esteem for his person? Are we not eager to see the glory of Christ in the salvation of many sinners and the going forth of his kingdom and the adding to the church of Jesus Christ, men and women, boys and girls being saved from their sin, people being baptized upon a profession of faith and added to the church? And it is not by money that we do it, and it's not by bishops, it's not by royalty, and it's not by nobility. No, what we desire is for God to show himself. And our very weakness and want of power is our adaptation to God's work. It is the Lord God who uses the weak and the foolish in order to glorify his great name. And Spurgeon now concludes really with this uh, image of the, the, the army of Gideon, the son of Joash, threshing wheat in the winepress. He says that we as Baptists have generally been too much afraid to be seen. We've threshed our corn somewhere away in the winepress, up a back court, down a narrow street. Any dirty hole would do to build a chapel in, so long as people could not find it, the site was thought advantageous. And if nobody could ever see it, that was the place for our fathers and for some who still linger among us. Now, I think we need to be a little careful here and a little charitable because uh, maybe Spurgeon, uh, running ahead of himself, may have forgotten some of the circumstances under which those chapels were first built uh, when uh, there was either before or perhaps even after the act of toleration, there was a particular pressure upon the Baptists to withdraw and to keep themselves to themselves. Uh, there were certain obligations that were laid upon them in the act of toleration. And yet, I don't think he's far off to say that <clears throat> somewhere along the line, we've too much learned to keep ourselves in the background in an unholy sense. And it's time, says Spurgeon, for us to rally under our church officers like Gideon's men, follow where a warm heart leads them the way. Gideon took his men and he bid them do two things. Covering up a torch in an earthen pitcher, he bade them at an appointed signal break that pitcher and let the light shine, and then sound with their trumpets, crying, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And, says Spurgeon, Christians must shine and they must shout. 
First, break the pitcher which conceals you, throw aside the bushel which has been hiding your candle, and shine. Let your light shine before men. Let your good works be such that when they look upon you, they shall know that you have been with Jesus. There is much good done by the shining. And then there must be the sound, the blowing of the trumpet, the hearing of the gospel by the preaching of that gospel. There are many members of this church who never heard a gospel sermon, says Spurgeon, until they heard some of you preaching in the street. They never went to church, but when they went down a street, they heard a man speaking. And so, says Spurgeon, the true war cry of the church must be Gideon's, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The sword of the Lord. God must do it. It is God's work, but we are not to be idle. Instrumentality is to be used. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon? Mark you, if we only cry the sword of the Lord, we shall be guilty of an idle presumption, tempting God to depart from his fixed rule of procedure. This is the cry of every lazy liarbed. What good ever comes of saying, the Lord will do his own work, let us sit still? There's hyper-Calvinism. Nor must it be the sword of Gideon alone, for that were idolatrous reliance on an arm of flesh. There's Arminianism. We can do nothing of ourselves. Not the sword of the Lord only. There's idleness. But the two together, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And says Spurgeon, he is living in a day we speaking of his own congregation, now is a glorious opportunity. There's a spirit of hearing upon the people. Almost anyone may get a hearing who is willing to preach Christ. And at that point, you and I might say, aha, now there's the answer. You know, Spurgeon was just living in a day of gospel blessing. Uh, you can preach like that then. You can have those expectations then. It's perfectly normal when you're seeing that kind of blessing, but not us and not now, to which I would say, nonsense. All the more shining and all the more shouting because it is so hard to get a hearing. And I mean the shining and the shouting in this gospel sense of Gideon's army. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon must be our cry still. Now or never, says Spurgeon, sons of Jacob, be like a lion among the flock of sheep. Do not lie down and slumber. And so he says, practically, God has been pleased to put a sword into my hand and to give me my lamp and my pitcher. Remember at the beginning we said he's preaching this particularly with the pastor's college in mind. He says, my college of young men is now become in the Lord's hands a marvellous power for good. A blessing greater than I could have expected rests on this work. We are continually sending them out. God owns them in the conversion of souls. I have never seen any agency more blessed to the conversion of souls than the agency of our college. And so he says, this is a work in which we must invest. Build the church buildings. But more, of the, more than that, build the church of Jesus Christ by investing in these men. Christ builds his church and these are the means that he is pleased to use. And so he says, Let's, uh, st we've striven to raise a fund of £5,000 to be lent out to these new churches so that they can establish a place for worship. And we're sending out these men in order to preach for them. Some £3,000 promised by our seven shepherds and principal men, but there are many who have not yet promised anything. 
And he's really stirred up by this. You have a chance to shine. You have a chance to shout. If you are content, listen to the passion here. If you are content to live without serving God, I am not. And if you are willing to let these hours roll by without doing something to extend the kingdom of Jesus, let me be gone from you. Let me be gone from you to those of warmer spirits and of holier aspirations, for I must fight for God. There must be victories won for him. Now, is that bullying? Is that bravado? Or is that a man of God taken up with the truth of Jesus Christ, determined to serve him and saying, I think, with honesty, with sincerity, with integrity, if you will not go with me, if you will not help me, if you will not serve alongside of me, then let me find others who will. We must extend the range of the gospel. We must find places where souls can be brought to hear the word. Why? Because the man by faith sees not only the humiliation of Christ for our salvation, but the exaltation of Christ for the care, the government and the extension of his glorious kingdom. And so Spurgeon calls men and women to put their faith in this Jesus and then to serve him, that the Lord God will be with us, Midian shall be put to confusion and the Lord God of hosts shall reign forever and forever. It's an earnest sermon. It rises to this point, to this crescendo, this climax of intensity. Spurgeon is earnest, in earnest throughout. Faith is stirred as we look to Jesus Christ, the enduring, unshaking King, as we consider how his kingship secures his kingdom. And because we have a perpetual king and because we have a perpetual kingdom, we can and should anticipate that the greatness of our king will go on being made known. I trust that that will be an encouragement to you. If you have a minister, uh, a, a pastor, a uh, elders who who are seeking to do these things, if there are men and women in your congregation who are laboring for the glory of Christ and the extension of his kingdom, then be pleased to throw your soul into the work. Glorify your God. Shine and shout for the praise and honor of his name. Thank you for listening. And I trust that next week you'll be back with us as we uh, turn to our next featured sermon, The Arrows of the Lord's Deliverance. It's Sermon 569 and we're reading 563 through to 569. May God help us to take to heart all of these things that we may be more and more ready to serve him in our generation. Amen and thank you for listening. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.